Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is Dr. Alan Trush, my longtime friend uh, and colleague uh, from uh, the studies uh, at uh, UNL at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Uh, he is now living in Taipei, in Taiwan, and uh, he's been student uh, of uh, George Ritchie. And um, uh, originally from uh, France, he grew up in uh, Michigan, the United States. So he has both cultures in his personality. And uh, in this conversation, you will find out so much about uh, his way ways of practice his experience with uh, the french organs uh, his uh, uh, experience uh, with the great masters uh, at unl and uh, indiana university and uh, other things that are so fascinating uh, when w- if you are just starting out on the organ uh, he will provide some insights uh, so that your practice will be efficient and enjoyable. So let's go to the show and uh, let's find this conversation inspiring. Welcome, uh, Alan, to this interview. I'm I'm very delighted uh, uh, to be able to talk to you after 10 years of uh, uh, break. We've been uh, co- colleagues and students at... Uh, Yonel uh, at the uh, uh, University of Nebraska Lincoln, and you've been a doctoral stud- student of uh, Dr. Uh, George Rishi, and uh, he, right. he was uh, a f- uh, fantastic professor, right over there. So we will talk about uh, your experience uh, at Yonel and others. But for starters, um, um, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, how did you first fall in love with the organ? I usually ask uh, our guests at the beginning of the conversation. It's very interesting, you see, because uh, usually we have those early childhood experience when somebody wise introduced us to the pipe organ. Um, maybe uh, we went to the concert. Do you remember such an occasion in your life? Yeah, uh, yes, and no. it's sort of vague for me. I, maybe my memory is not so good, uh, but um, I actually started uh, music really young, uh, like most musicians, I guess. And uh, I started playing the trumpet out of uh, all the instruments, which was actually um, unlikely because I was born with a malformation of the lip. Uh, it's called hair lip. Mm-hmm. So they thought, oh, trumpet might be really hard because my muscles were very stiff there. And But I managed to do it. Uh, I was like nine years old or something and uh, joined the conservatory in the south of France uh, where I partially grew up. Um, but meanwhile, my mom is a church organist. And so I always heard the organ. And I, I would uh, be on her side, you know, uh, during mass on Sundays. But at that age, I didn't think, oh yeah, I want to study organ. Uh, it was just not on my radar. And we moved to Michigan when I was 13. And uh, I, st- I, I was also interested in piano, so I would, I had some lessons on piano for a year or two, and. For some reason, I decided I wanted to uh, learn organ because my, my mom was uh, studying with uh, Stephen Egler at Central Michigan University. And uh, somehow, I, I said I, I, I was interested. I don't remember why particularly, but anyways, I started just studying with him and I just fell in love with it ever since. I just got really into it <laughs> Fantastic. but she would take me she would take me to organ concerts when i was very young like eight nine ten yeah mm. uh, you know uh and i i, I yeah I, it's it's not like oh that made me want to do it maybe it just entered my subconsciousness and then when i was ready then it surfa- surfaced you know right, <laughs> i don't right, know right. <laughs> uh, do you remember the first organ did you, uh, which, which you saw uh, from up close, the first instrument? Yes, uh, up close it was a very small 
church organ because where we lived was a village near Strasbourg, and the organ was very small, maybe like three or five stops, who knows? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's that's my first up close mm-hmm. uh, exposure. And then uh, I do remember in the because we moved from Strasbourg to the south of France near Nice, and I remember she took me to um, Saint Maximin. Uh, which I didn't really understand the, the, the significance of that organ at that age. <laughs> I just thought, oh, what a big sound. <laughs> it was quite something. I think it was André Isoir playing, but I'm, I'm not positive. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so at, at, at that age, uh, how old were you when you saw uh, uh, Saint Maximum? Oh, gosh. I think About. either nine or two. Nine or ten. Wow. I, I, I imagine hundreds or even thousands of organists would envy you, right? At that age, <laughs> at that little age, you were able to see one of the most spectacular organs in France, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Sounds. I just remember what a sound it is. Oh, yeah. And this uh, this church, uh, the small uh, village organ you, you just described uh, with a few stops, was it a... An old church, a historical church. Do you remember? Uh, uh, it was a small church, and in that in Alsace, what happened a lot of the time is the church would be shared with uh, Protestants mm-hmm. between Catholics and Protestants, and so that was one of them. It was shared, and uh, I think I don't know how old the church was, but probably. I don't know if it was, you know, during the war, a lot of buildings were, like, destroyed and all that. So I don't know if it was rebuilt to look old or just rebuilt or if it was just old. I'm not sure because I was so young. I was, like, six or seven. So I, I don't have a very clear picture in my mind. But uh, I do remember sitting ne- uh, or, or standing next to my mom and she would play the small pipe organ. Yeah, Fantastic. Uh, usually, uh, usually people when we, when they see this first instrument uh, in the in the church like this, later in years they can even recollect the the smell of the church. So the smell of the envi- environment, even the lightning, mm. the lighting itself. Do you, do you remember what time of the day it was? Uh, yes, it was Sunday morning. You see, you see, you remember that yeah. it was Sunday morning. It's an image in your mind that that really uh, went straight to your un- uh, subconsciousness, probably, <laughs> right? And then later made some changes uh, to your uh, character and uh, personality, and even your career, right? Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> Apparently, right. Fantastic. So from that per, uh, point, you were studying uh, uh, later in Michigan uh, some piano, right? And what happened next? Uh, uh, how did you formally uh, thought of uh, of studying the organ? You know, uh, f- transferring from piano to the organ. I I think because my mom she she was studying organ. Uh, uh, when we moved to the south of France, she actually enrolled in the adult class of the Conservatory of Nice. It was mm-hmm. ta- taught by Jean Wallet, who was uh, almost blind, actually. She, he went to the School for the Blinds in, in Paris. And uh, and then she wanted to continue that in Michigan. So she we found uh, Dr. Egler, Stephen Egler, who teaches at Central Michigan University. He was a student of uh, Robert Glasgow mm-hmm. at U of and uh, I think when she got invo- involved with that, uh, somehow that piqued my interest. I don't remember exactly how. I'm sorry, my memory is not too good. Uh, but I, I think it just really sparked my interest. And, and my father bought uh, an electronic, electronic organ for my mom to practice on at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, ooh, that's, that looks fun. Right. <laughs> And uh, that may be partially why I, I wanted to do it, uh, mm-hmm. just so I could play that that, that toy. And um, and so then I started uh, to take lessons with uh, Dr. Egler, and uh, and I just got hooked. <laughs> hooked. Good, good description. Hooked. Good. And, uh, and Alan, uh, usually people, when they uh, f- uh, remember their first organ, right? You just described uh, uh, this experience. Uh, experience is 
quite unforgettable. But also the first music, the first piece that you played. Do you remember the piece, first organ music that you performed or played on that electronic organ, for example? Uh, I remember practicing the G minor little fugue of Bach. Right. That was my first Bach piece. Uh, uh, that uh, Dr. Egler gave me. Well, that was after you know basics, of uh -huh, course, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> not not the first thing I did. And yeah, I remember practicing that on there. And uh, also, um, my, well, my first recital was after three years. So I started at either thirteen or fourteen years old. And then after three years, I gave my first recital uh, as a senior in high school. Uh huh. So I played that fugue, that little G minor fugue, and then the Tocada of Dubois, uh -huh. you know, pop, 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 pop. Uh, and then uh, Sarbi, Land of Rest, the Prelude on Land of Rest, and then Jean Anglais, you know, he has those small pieces, the nine, pie uh, nine pieces, and the Song of Peace, I think it's and Song of Wars, and I forgot, and I, I would play that. Fantastic. These are not the easiest pieces, right? No, so, so, I guess not. <laughs> right. So you were hard working right from the beginning, right? Yeah, actually, yeah, I was. I would spend quite quite mm -hmm. a bit of time on there. Yeah. And of course, piano background to help too, right? A little bit. Yeah, I, I I always had this complex about my background. I don't have a very strong piano background. Like you know, some people they start at five or six years old piano, and I didn't. I I started with a trumpet, as I said earlier. And I always played around on the piano, you know, playing from ear, you know, I would hear things and I would just try and see what I can duplicate it on the piano. And, uh, but I didn't, I only had a year or two of formal piano lessons, so mm -hmm. not a very strong piano background. So my, my technique, I always felt was just lacking. But I'm like, oh, that's fine. I'm I'm playing on the organ, and it's a different technique, and that's fine. And uh, but actually, uh, yeah, I think a piano background helps a lot. But yeah. on on the other hand, if you didn't have that extensive piano background, you could. Uh, uh, skip some some frustrations, right? Uh, and you well, didn't need true. to adapt. Adapt. Uh, you didn't need that's to adapt. That's true. I didn't need to adapt. That's right. true. I I never had a, a a pianist way of approaching the organ. I was always organ way of approaching the the organ. And and Dr. Egler taught me from the very beginning minimal movement. Right. Always minimal movement. <laughs> right. And. You know, not lifting of the wrist and all that. I never did that. Yeah. Fantastic. And uh, uh, how much time uh, per day did you practice over there? Uh, when I was in high school? Yeah. Uh, probably two to three hours. Oh, you could afford that much. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, many things can be achieved uh, over two, three hours. Many, many things, right? It's it's very yeah. adequate time. Well, and back then I wasn't as, how do you say that? When you're young, your push to practice is probably not the, the smartest. Uh, and, you know, after years and after uh, studying with uh, different people, then I learned how to practice a bit smarter than when I was young, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> and who was, who was your life-changing uh, expert or mentor who, who, who taught you the right efficient practice techniques? Um, well, I mean, Dr. Agler would try to teach me the efficient way. I just didn't want to listen, probably, uh -huh. or, or whatever. I was just stubborn. Uh, but uh, Dr. Ke Melan Kaiser, right. I, uh, I went there for my master's in Indiana University, and uh, she taught me some valuable way of uh, practicing. And then Dr. Ricci furthered that along. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all these great mentors, of course, uh, later have these formative uh, uh, impacts for our careers, right? Later, later on, yes. and uh, we remember those these, those approaches to practices uh, even decades later, right, Alain? Yes, yes. I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense now that I think about it. <laughs> I suspect that today you are practicing a little bit different, right? Because you are an expert in, yeah. in on this, so you don't need to uh, to let's say uh, take take a piece apart and and uh, study voice by voice, right? 
because you are a great sight uh, reader. But unless, may, I, sometimes you can. I've always been a very quick sight reader, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's to a detriment. That's a, a curse and a blessing. It's a blessing because I can, I can read quickly if I need to, like accompanying or whatever. But it's a curse because I would never take the time to very to be very detailed mm -hmm. and uh, and write the necessary fingering. I would just plow through a piece. And uh, now now I just take a more methodical approach to practicing, where I really take it apart and be very careful about fingering and be very detailed in things. Let, uh, let me say something to your credit, Alan. I think you are underestimating yourself because when we <laughs> were studying together at UNL, I didn't notice that at all. You practice those big pieces, the difficult repertoire, right? Uh, and <laughs> it was it was just perfect, perfect, yeah. And your DMA recitals went uh, just uh, fantastically, yeah. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about your experience uh, at UNL, all right? Uh, what first imp impressed you uh, at UNL, and and why did you choose that university over many others? Um, I first heard of uh, George Ritchie uh, through Steven Eggler, who uh, Steven Eggler uh, in the when I was in high school, I guess it would be 95, 96. Mm -hmm. uh, he went to he went on a sabbatical uh, with George Ritchie, so there was that first connection there. And um, when I was applying for master school, I actually applied at UNL and I uh, Indiana University. And um, I, I got accepted at IU. I, I got accepted at both places, but I, I, I wanted to go to IU, so I did. Mm -hmm. And but then after the masters, uh, then I'm like, okay, I think now I'm ready to go to a uh, UNL mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, to study with George Ritchie. I knew I knew his. Um, he had started back then. He had started his uh, Bach recording. He already had the. The first one, I don't know if the second one, oh yeah, the second one of course had come out by then or even the third, I'm not sure, uh, volume. So I knew of those and of course I would listen to them uh, to get inspiration and uh, so I, I applied and, and I got in the same year as you did. Right, right. right. And uh, what impressed me uh, was uh, both of them, Quentin Faulkner and George Ritchie, they're such great uh, people, just besides being great musicians, uh, just so welcoming and uh, and thoroughly knowledgeable in in what in their expertise, and uh, I just I was just drawn to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I cannot uh, I can uh, say only positive things about uh, George and Quentin because. Uh, uh, they are so different, right? Their personalities are different, <laughs> yes. but they complement each other so well. They are just like a perfect team duo, right? Like a tandem. Yeah. They work. Yeah. Uh, they led that uh, organ department. I, I mean, fantastically, uh, with with uh, with different types of personalities, but similar kind of approach to to stylistical uh, interpretations, right? They were yeah. both or uh, Bach scholars, right? And yes. um, and uh, Quentin uh, also had an ex or has an expertise in in, in church music in him 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 uh, hymnology, right? And other things yes. related to church. Yep. But but George Ritchie also has a, a great experience in jazz, right? He loves yeah, jazz. He would often talk about jazz when working on Bach piece. Right. <laughs> so you would find Bach and jazz related, right? Yeah. Do you remember which piece you were playing when he was talking about jazz and Bach? Um, well, the, my, my second Jimmy recital, uh, I, I played the... Um, the fourth uh, trio sonata and uh, the wedge, the E minor uh, prelude and fugue, and uh -huh. he would talk about like he would equate you know the walking bass of jazz. He would uh, equate it to um, uh, bass uh, pedal notes, you know, mm -hmm. in the the feet right. as a walking bass, and um, and also the flow the the flow of music. 
you know, like jazz musicians have to uh, pay attention to the flow of music between, uh, I don't know, I, I, I forgot exactly, but between the, the bass and then the piano and uh, other instruments. And he, he would talk about uh, in Bach, you have to pay attention to the flow of music. Like every note fits into that flow. Right. And jazz, right? Jazz organist. Have you observed how just jazz organist played with their feet? They only used uh, their left foot for the most oh. of the time, right? Right, yeah. Interesting, right? Because the right foot was reserved for, for the, uh, some gadgets, right? Pistons and, <laughs> and uh, toe, yeah. toe, toe pe pedals, right? Um, buttons. Yeah. Uh, changing as well pedal right too but uh, they were very very uh, virtuosic with with their left foot I guess mm. did you play Bach only with your left foot no <laughs> good <laughs> uh, no uh, only toes uh, I, I cheat sometimes with heel but very 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 rarely it's, it's mostly toes yeah right <laughs> so so George of course is a great advocate on on historical approach uh, of playing early music and uh, maybe let's say not historical but historically informed way I mean mm. you know uh, the techniques and then you can make informed decisions whether or not to use that on modern That's instrument fine. right right yeah. but uh, yes you're right he, he would uh, probably recommend avoiding heels in in early music right yeah right have you played by the way some historical instruments in France and can you uh, uh, um, can you say that heel playing in early music is not even so uh, efficient yeah right well I've played uh, I, I've played the forgot the year but the the 18th century Zilberman and Marmoutier. Right. Uh, 1714, 20 something. I forgot. I'm sorry. I'm not good with dates. But anyways, uh, that organ in Marmoutier. I've played it and uh, the pedal notes are short. Mm -hmm. uh, as was typical of older organs. So actually, even if you wanted to, it's not very practical to play with heels. Right, right. And uh, so you basically have to play with toes and and sitting a bit higher, actually, than you would for uh, romantic music. Yeah, exactly. And that's what one of the reasons for avoiding heels. And the second, I think, was because many organists uh, practiced on pedal clavichords back then. And on mm. the clavichord, remember, they had this clavichord at UNL. They did. Yes. You couldn't even uh, uh, produce <laughs> the sound, qu quality sound on the pedals with heel because it's it's such a different approach, right? Did you like yeah. that cla pedal clavichord, by the way? Yeah, yeah, we practiced on there. Mm -hmm. uh, it just made you pay attention to... You, you have to be very uh, uh, meticulous, I mean, uh, precise uh, right. with your touch. <laughs> and, and hands also, right? If you just yeah. play uh, without any weight, right? There is no sound, right? You have to use <laughs> your entire arm and, uh, and shoulder muscles probably to get some sound. Um, yeah. It's You have to be, uh, well, very relaxed, right? Yeah. Right. And that transfers to the organ technique very well. Fantastic, Alan. And um, um, what were some of the uh, more interesting instruments you saw at UNL, of course, besides that clavichord? Um, well, the cornerstone organ, the the obedient uh, uh, organ that uh, used to be a cornerstone is not there anymore. Uh, I found that organ so uh, hard to play because, you know, coming from like in high school and even masters, we play an electro-pneumatic mm -hmm. organ, you know, which you can play pretty much however you want. It'll be okay, uh, but. On the on such uh, on the obedience, uh, which is a historically informed organ and uh, mechanical, you had to be so sen uh, precise with your touch. It would be very sensitive, and uh, so that really taught me uh, a different way of approaching the organ touch-wise. Right. Do you remember? Mm. Do you remember the the winding system of that instrument? Very very flexible. <laughs> you you, you oh, play yeah. big chord, 
and you release it and right it makes some sound effects undesirable sound effects so yeah. uh, how did you deal with that uh, issue uh, of winding on corner store organ well uh, I think maybe uh, just maybe roll the right, organ a right, little right, right. roll the chord a little bit so it's not all at once uh, yeah to, to de- not to demand too much wind out, out of the organ uh, what happens probably is that this organ has very low uh, wind pressure right very low uh, mm. and uh, if if you play a big chord maybe eight notes uh, on the hands and a couple of on your feet right with double f- pedals ten voices sometimes it happens right <laughs> like in reger music right reger max reger <laughs> right what uh, happens reger on that organ but yeah <laughs> but if, if if you did if you did if you did you play that and uh, uh, suddenly, all the air out of the bellows is needed, right? From the bellows yes. to, to, to go into the pipes. T- ten pipes are sounding right away. But if you are playing with full organ stops, there are m- maybe, what, 15 stops or more? Uh, maybe yeah. 20. So, uh, uh, multiply that times 20, right? And uh, <laughs> you will see that a grand amount of, of wind is needed just for that chord. And when you release that chord suddenly, right, without rolling, uh, the bellows make that (coughs) squeaky (laughs) hiccup, right? And and as you say, if you release the chord one by one, so sort of uh, very very gently rolling uh, chord um, from bottom up, maybe, I guess probably but if there are different approaches then then the pipes are uh, more more gently uh, basically uh, wind is more gently transferred to the pipes back to the bellows right yeah yeah mm-hmm. interesting approach and but that happens on historical organs if you go to europe <laughs> and uh, and play some organs in the netherlands for example yeah uh, I've never been there. I'd, I'd love to one day. But, yeah. uh, hey, Alan, uh, can you tell us a little bit what was uh, uh, frustrating to you at uh, UNL? Did you have some challenges there? Challenges? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no, I mean, j- just just you know working on pieces, uh, that was the challenges. I mean, nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, and uh, and I never had uh, problems, you know, uh, uh, school-wise or, or, or courses-wise. Um, so I never had like crazy challenges. Just the usual, uh, just the daily grind of practicing on a bit on pieces, you know. Right, That's, right, right. That's but you had this, but you had this experience and you knew how to practice efficiently already by that time probably so that was not too difficult right you just have to, you had to commit to just new pieces it. and and and, yeah. and do it just do it just sit down <laughs> and do it that's, it. Yeah, that's, right. that's the big, that's the biggest part I and mean, that's the biggest thing is just sit down and be patient you have to be yeah. patient with yourself and just do it but, but when you have uh, Quentin and George on your side to motivate you I guess it's easy relatively easy right yeah yeah another another students around you in that hour uh, uh, small circle of, of friends right remember uh, on Mondays we had organ studios and what we did yeah. afterwards yeah, we we went out to eat and have some beer and yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk, it talk was a very, very friendly environment, right? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, I didn't feel that we were too competitive at that UNL studio. Do you? Did you? No, no. It, it was more friendly, and friendliness, su- support. and supportiveness. Uh, not competitive at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're just just happy to see each other uh, do whatever we we were doing and, right uh, yeah and wish each other the best right the best That's, yeah mm-hmm. because if you if your friend is happy you are also happy right for for him yeah. or her and uh, 
this makes you even more productive you're basically a happier person that's great I, I sometimes think that over competitiveness uh, can hurt uh, uh, personalities and relationships too between the people and colleagues especially yeah don't you yeah know? yeah yeah and and actually UNL was a good fit for me in that way because I've, I was never a very competitive kind of person and mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just like to do my thing sit down and, and do it the best I can and I, and I always actually I always compete against myself and, and we all do and uh, I just set a challenge for myself and okay I, I really like this piece I uh, and I want to learn it so I just sit down and do it and that's that's how I grow is just compete with myself well that's and that's I, Amazing, Alan. Let's let's uh, rec recapitulate a little bit, uh, recap and uh, uh, reframe this this uh, this uh, statement because you, what you said is an insight so valuable that uh, hundreds of people uh, around the world will have an aha moment. That you said that your uh, you compete with yourself, right? Your biggest yeah. opponent probably is yourself, right? You're not competing yes. with with other students or even masters, right? To t try to achieve their level, try to be the second Bach or the third number Richie, the George Richie, <laughs> because there is <laughs> a George Richie already, right? There what is, what yeah. what you're doing is you're competing with yourself, right? You're trying to do. Yes. With, with what I can do, I mean, am, am I doing? Am I pushing the hardest I can, and am I doing everything I can to to achieve uh, my goal with this particular piece? Is you know the question because I I can't com compare myself with uh, the Latris of the world and and uh, who, whoever else is you know who's won like ten competitions and whatever. I'm just not them, and but I can push myself. To my to, to to the best of my ability that I can do. Right, be Alan Trouche, right? Be yeah. yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Be the best you are you in in this ever changing uh, organ landscape. That's the, yeah. the most important thing, right? Because yeah. your uniqueness is what's what will make your you remarkable in this world not how mm. you copy some masters not how you try to emulate their techniques and approaches right but, yeah. but, but your own uniqueness probably your originality yeah and I've never I've never really tried to copy people I, I do listen and uh, get inspiration from uh, you know like Nowadays, there's YouTube, <laughs> so you can find so many uh, clips of uh, organists on YouTube. And uh, like when I was learning the pageant of Sarbi, uh, I was uh, listening and, and looking at various people and to see, oh, how, how and you can't really tell what fingerings they're using. So that's up to you to find the, the right, what, what, what works for you. But you, I, I, you would see the posture, the sounds they would use, and like, oh, that's interesting. Well, that works for that organ, but my organ, that probably won't work because it's smaller. So I need to find something that would maybe emulate. Uh, but uh, like I was looking at Ken Cohen, and, and he's just a fabulous player. You know, his pedal technique is just flawless. I'm like, wow. And that made me want to, I'm like, okay, I need to take my te pedal technique to the next level. That, that inspired me when I saw that. Exactly. Like, okay. You treat the videos <laughs> as in inspiration, right? And not inspiration, uh, inspiration but not necessarily to 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 uh, to scare you away from the practice, right? You saw the big video of pedal uh, passage uh, of virtuoso Ken Cowan, and you said, "Oh no, I'm not him, and I will drop organ playing altogether," right? <laughs> no, no, it just inspired me. It's to just just sit down and buckle up and and do the work. And uh, actually, um, when I was with uh, Dr. Merlin Kaiser. Uh, she uh, introduced me to this uh, pedal technique uh, book, Pedal Exercises by Nielsen. Mm -hmm. do, do you know? Uh, right. the, yeah, the Nielsen uh, pedal technique. Good. And I never, I did some back then, but not many. And uh, recently, uh, past, uh, since I've been in Taiwan, uh, I'm like, okay, this is it. Every day as a warm up before I do anything else, pedal exercises. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. And it really helps to to make your ankle more flexible, 
and just so you can get really close to the keys, you know, for those fast passages and to, to, don't do uh, extra uh, movement. That's, that's not necessary. And uh, as yeah. you say, as you say, at the beginning of its practice, when your body is still cool, cold, right? Oh. Right. Yes, yes. You I need think to warm warming up, up j just just like uh, you know uh, people who work out, you know, for muscles and all that. It's a very bad idea to start uh, cold with uh, cold muscles. Right. And so I, I definitely think warming up uh, is a really uh, a good thing to do. Uh, do doing some exercises to warm up your muscles. And. Uh, same thing for hands. You know, every day I do pedal. Uh, I do uh, piano uh, exercises. Mm -hmm. uh, I do anything else. Right. And uh, in your experience, Alan, uh, how much time does it take to warm up your hands and feet? Warm up. I do about twenty to twenty. Yeah, about twenty minutes of piano exercises. Sometimes mm -hmm. thirty minutes. Uh, I, I do. Um, I don't know if you know the book. It's uh, Behringer. Right. Oh, it's sort of like Hanan, I think. Uh, he he, um, he focuses on the you know the five finger position uh, into a different um, chromatic keys and then progressive movement. So uh, uh, three four five, three four five, three four five. Mm -hmm. You know throughout the keys to, because you know three four five are weak, four five are weak fingers. So I've been working on those to strengthen my finger independence mm -hmm. and. Uh, and just evenness of touch, so things are you know in fast scalar passages, things are more uh, smooth and even. That really helps. So I spent about twenty to thirty minutes of piano mm -hmm. exercises, and then uh, pedal. Oh gosh, I do one exercise a day from each se section. Mm -hmm. So there there are sections in that book. So I think, oh I don't know. However long that is, I never really mm -hmm. looked. Probably 10-15 minutes, I would think, at least. Yeah. Right, to get your body warmed up, get yeah, get get the uh, the blood uh, circulation going, good. Yeah. And what do you do later? Did you do you practice uh, pieces afterwards? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I tend to practice both on the piano and on the organ. Uh, piano just because uh, that provides extra um, resistance uh, in case you're not on the mechanical organ, which I don't always have access to a mechanical organ, so then I rely on the piano. Mm -hmm. um, so especially like uh, more pianistic pieces, I, I would uh, do more on the piano. Like I just uh, last fall I played the Nayad of Yen, and that's a very pianistic piece. So mm -hmm. I, I did. That on the piano. Mm. Um, uh, what was your question? <laughs> uh, uh, and back back then at UNL, do you remember um, uh, your uh, DMA document or dissertation title? Do you remember what was interesting to you at that time to research? Uh, yes, I actually um, I was organ scholar at uh, St. Cecilia Cathedral in Omaha. Yeah. Uh, when Kevin Vogt was there as the director of music. And he suggested, because I didn't know what to do. I really did not know what to do back then. And he suggested uh, to do something about the composer, the French organ, uh, composer, Jean-Louis Florence, who was a pupil of Messiaen. Uh, and he developed his own musical language, just like Messiaen did. Mm -hmm. And wrote a treatise. Uh, it was in French, though. And uh, thank goodness I'm French, so I could read it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I decided to do Jean-Louis Florence. I, I, I got some recordings from uh, French organist Michel Boursier, who mm -hmm. had recorded quite a few of his uh, pieces. Fantastic recordings, actually. And, um, and then uh, I got hold of the treatise. Uh, because I contacted, actually, the, the, the widow of Jean-Louis Florence, who had died uh, back in 2004. Was it 2004 when he died? I forgot. Anyways. Um, Can you spell uh, spell out his last name? Because uh, people yeah, will Fla look up. Florence. Yeah, Florence is F-L-O-R-E-N-T-Z. Right. Good. Now people will know what we're talking about. Great. And uh, you did uh, write some research about that, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I decided to focus on the... 
uh, it's seven movements, it's called Laudes, L-A-U-D-E-S. And um, I did some research on that, and I looked at these treaties, and uh, read some things, and uh, so I just basically did a, a summarization of the treaties in English because it was just in French back then mm-hmm. and just uh, this is how he conceived of, conceived of his music and uh, and I applied his uh, way of dealing with music to his piece Laudus and through his lens and then I also applied some uh, 12 tone uh, not 12 tone uh, just 20th century technique uh, to it and um, and that was my lecture recital too uh, on the loudest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the more challenging pieces I've ever done because the the rhythm in there is just really really crazy, <laughs> challenging. <laughs> Do you know uh, the loudest by Peter Eben, Czech composer? Uh, another great. No, I don't know. No, I don't uh-huh. know that piece. But the same title, uh, four movements, and it is. Tremendously difficult, <laughs> rhythmically too. Uh, very, yeah. very difficult. I played that uh, when I was a student at uh, Lithuanian Academy of Music. So, uh, but it also uh, it's it's a religious setting and uh, it has some chant uh, uh, fragments in it. Uh, but it's very Eben-like, uh, you know, this his uh, uh, polytonal, uh, multi-key. Uh, style oh, yes. where major and minor are interspersed all the time and by tonalities everywhere very 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 uh, colorful piece by the cycle I uh, right and talking about challenge mm-hmm. um, there was a trumpeter a trumpetist who wanted to play the windows of uh, Petreben right uh, the four colored windows the, is it Chagall Chagall yeah uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so he asked me if I could uh, play with him because it's for organ and trumpet. I'm like, oh, well, I've never played Pet Rebben before. I'm like, okay, wow. <laughs> to put that together was very challenging, but uh, very, very satisfying too. Yeah, when it came together, it was really, really uh, just, yeah, fulfilling. Uh, what year was that, uh, your performance? Oh, long time ago. Yeah, that was uh, 2006 or 2007. Maybe 2007, I forgot. It was towards the end. Still at UNL, yeah. right? Yeah, still at UNL. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, Peter Eben uh, has written not only music for trumpet and organ, but also, you know, landscapes of Patmos for organ and percussion. No, I don't know that one. Yeah. Uh, Oshera played that um, back in Lithuania too with one of the greatest percussionists in Lithuania. So it was, wow. as, as you say, the same experience with trumpet and organ, the same is with, with organ and percussion. Very colorful, uh, quite challenging, but well worth the effort. Yeah, in the yeah, end. Definitely worth mm-hmm. the effort, yeah. Right. Unfortunately, Petr Eben is no longer with us, right? Yeah, he died. Um, he died, and uh, but he will remain forever as a great uh, source of inspiration and uh, a master of uh, of organ composition and a great improviser. By the way, he he usually would uh, make improvisation tours uh, across across various countries. He would play uh, some big cycle of his improvisation, which he later will write write down. You know, as a written down composition. Uh, mm. I, I've uh, witnessed uh, one such, two such performances actually of, of labyrinth, um, labyrinth about the labyrinth uh, uh, at, at Eastman School of Music. One was uh, oh. very very interesting with with the um, with the narrator uh, based on the text of the of 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 the 16th or 17th century. Um, um, uh, writings I forgot by whom I have to look it up but but definitely it's very creative and, and just a, like a storytelling in musical means and he improvised that too wow fantastic so Alan we talked about Yonel and uh, what happened next how did you end up in Far East in Taiwan 
Well, uh, I actually, after UNL, I got a job in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Presbyterian Church, and I was there for uh, about three years. And uh, that was, and that's how I met Mark Labach. I don't know if you know him. Uh, he won the national AGO competition back in eighty. I want to say eighty four. I'm not positive. Mm -hmm. And he's a fantastic organist. Um, right. So great recordings. Uh, one of them is the Teutonic. It's called Teutonic. Organ works. I forgot. Anyways, he plays the Adnos, the Les Adnos, and work on the same recording. <laughs> uh, but it's just fantastic. Anyways, uh, I met him, and that was great because uh, he's in Wilkes-Barre, right there near Scranton, and uh, and I, I got to play at his church too, which is nice. He has a really nice Berghaus organ there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then um, I, I moved out here because uh, uh, my partner is uh, Taiwanese. Right. So I met him through, uh, at UNL, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I moved out here, and uh, I've been involved uh, a little bit. In the, they have an ATO chapter here mm -hmm. uh, in Taipei uh, for the whole of Taiwan, actually. And there's a small organ scene. Uh, the organ is relatively new in Taiwan. Uh, and came in through uh, Presbyterian, there are, yeah, Presbyterians and, and mostly Presbyterians and some Catholics uh, and other de uh, denominations, but most of the pipe organs are in Presbyterian churches. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the actually the recordings, I have a few recordings on YouTube, that's from a pipe organ at a Presbyterian college, it's called uh, Aletheia near Taipei, and that's, I think it's a Dutch organ builder, Pels van Leuven, or mm -hmm. I don't know how to say it. It's a pretty big uh, three-manual organ uh, there, mechanical. And uh, yeah, I, I've played uh, a few times there. It's a really nice organ. So mm. it's very interesting. You see, in many European countries, organ culture is quite uh, on the down uh, basically diminishing right because of the church, yeah. church attendance in in western yeah. societies western civilization but if you look into the eastern countries like china uh, japan korea and i would suspect taiwan too i would suspect that it it's the opposite because the organ is on the rise can you testify this can you can, can you say that i'm telling uh, sort of the truth. Yes, well, especially in uh, I know in Korea the, and Japan, the organ scene is further along than Taiwan and in China also. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, I'm not sure about the rest of the Southeast Asia and uh, Taiwan. Uh, I think it started. Oh gosh, I'm not too sure. Maybe in the 70s or maybe 60s. I'm not too sure. Uh, but then in uh, in the 80s, they decided to install an organ in the National Concert Hall. Mm -hmm. It's a Ventrop. <laughs> and uh, it's a quite nice, actually, uh, for uh, Bach and, and earlier. Uh, yeah, you can play other things, but it's more of a Baroque kind of organ. Uh, so, yeah, uh, and... The Elithia, they installed their organ in 97, which is the second biggest organ in Taiwan. And now they're building a new concert hall in Kaohsiung, which is in the south of Taiwan, a big concert uh, complex. I mean, there'll be concert hall, recital hall, opera, whatever. And they're installing a big, big, big uh, Kleist organ. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Germany, and there are quite a few other clients here in Taipei. They're small though, and so that's going to be a big uh, uh, council hall organ there. So yes, there is um, there's uh, more installations, mm -hmm. more uh, interest, more interest, yeah. right, in the organ. Yeah, Pe people don't really know much about organ here. I mean, people. I mean, like uh, audience, mm -hmm. and uh, so. Uh, yeah, I think it's just going to take time 
you know, f to introduce the organ to, to a culture that doesn't really have it. You know, uh, the most people here are Buddhist or, or Taoist, and they just don't have that uh, in their culture. But uh, I, I think it's on the rise, yeah. It's very interesting, Kalan, uh, because uh, did you have uh, opportunities to play concerts in Taiwan, for example? perform yes. publicly right did you yes. did you meet people afterwards local audience uh, did you uh, did you talk with them what was their experience with the organ uh, is it is it different from the western i'm not so sure i um my my conversation are quite limited because of the language barrier right. uh, with the local people but uh, i think they i think they're in, don't know what to make of the pipe organ and they're they're interested like oh that's they just don't know about it it's a total blank slate there's no baggage mm -hmm. it's just whatever you, pre you play it's like oh okay I, they wouldn't know you know what it's supposed to be like right. and uh, so they just take it at face value you like oh yeah that's great or or whatever uh -huh. uh, but that they're quite open, open. and uh, and curious so right Curious. Curious, yeah. Uh -huh. So if you just, you know, make them aware that the organ is there, uh, because most of them don't go to a, a Christian church. You know, it's a very it's minority here. So you really have to do a lot of work to promote the organ, because mm -hmm. besides the people who go to that local church that happens to have the pipe organ, they wouldn't know that it's there. So you just have to do a lot of work to promote it to the larger uh, people at large, you know, who, mm -hmm. who don't go to that particular church or whatever. Right. But I think they're quite open to it, yeah. Great. So I guess uh, there is some future for, for pipe organ culture in, in the world at uh, um, in general, because uh, although European countries are uh, sort of <laughs> sometimes even selling their instruments abroad, right, and, <laughs> and shipping their uh, organs to other countries where it is still needed, but uh, in in that part of the world where Far East, for example, as you say, organ culture might blossom someday or one day, and that's because of you, Alan, too, because you are an organ ambassador right over there you are you are an ambassador so you make this happen some sometimes in your own world in your own network you have some network of friends local friends as well so when they think about the organ they think about alan too and when they think about alan they think about the organ so it's all connected right and your effort will be of course appreciated in 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 paradise, <laughs> right. great, uh, fantastic, uh, Alain. What are you working on right now? What are what is your future if plans uh, with the organ playing? Right now, I'm working on uh, an all Dupré Marcel Dupré concert because mm -hmm. I've never played Dupré before ever. So I've always wanted to, and so I decided to uh, do the Prelude and Fugue in B major, you know, the Opus Seven, yeah. number one. Uh, it's a classic, <laughs> and then the Cortège and Litany, right. another classic, and the variations on the Noel, and then the Symphony Passion. Oh. So all earlier works of Dupré. Yeah. So that's going to be. Hopefully in that Aletheia University on that Pels van Leuven organ. Uh huh. So, yeah, it's a nice organ for that. Have you set the date yet? Not yet. It's not for sure yet. Sometime in May. In May. Uh, May of course is the Dupré's birthday. I think it was May third. May third. Yeah. Mm -hmm. May third. Yeah. So sometime in May. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think. Great. So that's up, uh, coming up very, very fast, very soon, right? It is. It is. <laughs> Good. So I wish you all the success and and uh, bravery to, to sit down and do the work, right, on the bench that you need to prepare for that uh, challenge. And uh, Alain, um, um, for our closing part of uh, our conversation, can you direct our listeners to some place online where they can find out more about you and your work? That would be great. 
Uh, I don't have a big online presence, uh, but they can find a few uh, videos of me playing recently on YouTube. Just uh, type my name, A-L-A-I-N, that's my first name, Alain, mm -hmm. then last name, Truche, T-R-U-C-H-E. And if they type it, they should be able to find uh, there are a few recordings. There's the pageant of Sarbi, the, the first movement of the Symphony Passion uh, mm -hmm. that I did uh, recently, and uh, Whitlock, mm -hmm. the Scherzetto from the C minor Sonata, and uh, a couple other things, yeah. Fantastic. I will make sure I will put that into the description. Your YouTube channel. Uh, your yeah. YouTube channel will go into the description of this podcast. Fantastic. Um, and uh, Alain, I know we are short of time. You have many things to do. Great day in Taipei. And um, um, can you tell us, just for the closing part, okay, for the very, very last thing, can you say as uh, an insight you wish you knew when you were just starting out you, you know you were just starting out playing the organ and mm. something you didn't know maybe for some frustration right and you now know this thing so i think beginners around the world will appreciate that uh insight well i've got more than one but uh, oh good first good, of good, all good. uh yeah right fingering from the get-go. Good. Yeah, because I didn't do that when I was young, and, and I should have, because now that I do that, I learn a piece much quicker. Yeah. Uh, and it's more reliable, uh, your, your fingering. So write it down. Uh, just follow what your teacher says <laughs> to do. Uh, and also, uh, piano exercises. You know, don't don't disregard those. Those are important. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, pedal exercises. If you're at that level, you know, if you if you've mastered the how to play or, uh, pedals, you know, the basics, mm -hmm. then then the next uh, step would be uh, to exercise pedal uh, to make sure those ankles are flexible. And uh, also. Always practice. Um, how to say that? The you know sometimes well, it depends on the organs. I don't know about Europe, but like in the U.S., a lot of organs have pistons, right? Mm -hmm. Like buttons. Right. And uh, so if you can do those yourself, do it. And but practice doing them while you learn the piece, so they become part integral part of the performance. Mm -hmm. So not after after you already you know learn, know how to play the. The piece, then you learn how to push the buttons. It's a little awkward afterwards. So just make it integral part of learning. Mm -hmm. The the movement of pushing buttons and all that. Thank you so much, Alan. Did you know that you are a great teacher too? No, I didn't. <laughs> because you just told us an invaluable piece of information. Is a few things that people will 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 value so much, right? And uh, try to incorporate into their practice. But but you, it takes it takes um, it takes some uh, fresh look into your uh, practice, right? And and a reflection, uh, right? How you practice and what helps, what what that, this doesn't. And uh, you've been so generous with your insight oh, and time. So one thanks. More. One, one more. more. Okay, bonus, bonus, bonus. Bonus. Small segments. Don't do a whole piece through. That's just that's just a waste. Always small, maybe two three measures at a time, mm -hmm. and repeat in a relaxed way, slow way, relaxed way, until it becomes second nature. Then you can speed up mentally. Yeah, that's. I wish I would have known that when I was young. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Two thumbs up. Uh, so, Alan, I wish you uh, uh, stay healthy this year, at least, <laughs> and every uh, every year, of course. And uh, uh, thank I, you for inviting me. Right, and uh, it was my pleasure because you were uh, so inspiring and so. S you're a great storyteller, by the way, and it makes uh, uh, your conversation, your your story, so much more enjoyable and uh, uh, comprehensible too. If you can tell uh, 
experiences from your life that mm. and you did so perfectly and of course i wish you all the creativity that you can master and bravery music for musical adventures this year to happen thank you i wish you the best too thank you so much and we'll stay in touch right okay yeah sure okay thank you okay and and uh, uh, keep practicing, keep doing the work oh, uh, you do. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt, where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavichus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.